Hello, everyone. Hi. <laughs> um, I apologize if I sound a little jittery or shaky. I'm not, you know, used to doing something like this, but I'm very excited, which I've heard is a good combination to be nervous and excited. But like Chris said, my name is Abel Siemens. I'm sure many of you already know me or have kind of seen me around. Um, I used to help out with the worship team, uh, though I recently took some time away from that because I got married to a very beautiful woman named Paisley. Um, but I'm also sure that many of you do not know me, so a little bit about me. I've been going to Anthem for close to seven years now. Uh, I grew up here in Idaho, though I was originally born in Illinois. Um, I came to know Jesus a little over five years ago, just before I turned 18. And of course, ever since, he's radically changed my life and taught me so many amazing and wonderful things through his word and time spent in his presence. Over the past few months, I was in the God's Big Picture class taught by Bruce, wherever he is. And he, uh, he preached a few weeks ago, like Chris said, and that was a really wonderful way to meet even more of you, and so hopefully as time goes on, I can just get to meet all of you. Um, anyways, that's enough about me. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so let's just hop right into it. Um, we're going to go over prayer, uh, which is a really vast subject and one that could easily take up, you know, the length of like a million sermons, but hopefully I can get something across to you guys in the next 40-ish minutes. Um, prayer has been on my heart these past few years after reading a couple books by the author E.M. Bounds, uh, who was a minister in the late 1800s, and, um, and then after that, taking sort of a, a deep dive into the idea of biblical prayer, and it certainly caused me to reevaluate my own prayer life. My goal here today is hopefully to encourage you all to do the same, to reevaluate, reassess, and take a look at one of the strongest ways you have of speaking directly to God. So in that spirit, and before we begin, let's pray. Father God, I just ask that you bless us, Lord. Bless this congregation, bless us as a body of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, and allow us to just come before you in this prayer and come before you in all of our prayers, humbly and with a contrite spirit, Lord, that we can be filled with your, your glory, that we can make our requests known to you, that you can bless us and sustain us and keep us safe. Bless our families and our friends and allow us to be a light to the community we're in. Allow us to preach your gospel boldly, Father. We love you, God, and we say this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, before we get into the section of scripture that'll be informing today's sermon, I wanted to take a bit of time to address a few common misconceptions about prayer, both from a secular worldview and a uh, Christian worldview, actually. So, I want to start off this section, the secular worldview section, by prefacing why we're even discussing something like that. Of course, these two views that I'm about to discuss aren't actually reflective of prayer, uh, prayer, but oddly enough, I've noticed both of these influencing how many of my Christian friends and peers are engaging in prayer. And I think it's, of course, influencing us in a negative way. So starting off in general, I think there are two ways that secular culture talks about prayer. I think the first way is that prayer is a deflection, and this is the most negative way to think about prayer. Um, and I think this kind of stems from Kind of in, I've noticed this in the past five and five or ten years, but often in the wake of uh, crisis or tragedy, Christians will often put out the phrase, you know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And I think a lot of people, when seeing that phrase, unbelievers, they'll say, oh, if Christians are putting those two ideas in conjunction with one another, then they must mean the same thing. That praying to a God is akin to just thinking nice thoughts about somebody. And so they say, well, I don't want your prayers, they don't do anything. And, of course, we know that's not true. We know that when we pray before God, we're heard and that there's a response. But it is definitely one of the ways that 
people are approaching prayer from an unbelieving standpoint. And then the second way that I notice people talk about prayer is that prayer is a coping mechanism. And this is not you know, correct, but it is the more positive way that people think about prayer. What I've noticed about this is that it's often an attempt by the individual to make sense of the problems associated with existence. So these are larger ideas we have of crises with you know, family or friends are not being provided for. I found a lot of people kind of engaged in this sort of new age spiritualism, coming before some sort of God in prayer in an attempt to kind of you know, engage some sort of pseudo-therapeutic practice to kind of bring their you know, problems before somebody and whether or not those problems get solved, it's just nice to kind of vent out those problems. During my research for the sermon, I came across a really interesting article on the subject. It's called The Rise of New Age Spiritualism. And this article is essentially a series of interviews on how people are using prayer and spirituality in sort of an ambiguous sense, like I was just talking about, in order to solve problems with identity and existence. It's a pretty fascinating article, but as I was reading through the comments section and seeing what people were saying in response to these interviews, I came across this comment from a user, Nell, where she says, the interesting thing about this current interest in New Age stuff, like crystals and horoscopes, is that it's often really divorced from community. It's all about an individual experience rather than a communal one, and it's very focused on the self. So this idea of ambiguous prayer can be just that. It's a way to create and establish spirituality in the life of someone who isn't spiritual. It's an attempt to give an accepted meaning to life that has all the rigidness, structure, and dogma of religion while also having the flexibility of self-determination. So you set the rules, you set the parameters, but it's, prayer is there for you. It's not that communal experience we have with God that we know prayer as. And as I was looking into these two definitions of prayer from an unbelieving perspective, I came across a very interesting woman. She's a Stanford anthropologist and author, T.M. Lerman. And she spent a span of 20-some years studying evangelical and charismatic churches in the Chicago and San Francisco area. And she was very much engrossed in these communities. She made real-life, valuable connections with these men and women in the church and would often interview them and take note of their personal spiritual practices. And as a note and aside, T.M. Lerman is not a believer. She's more agnostic, but she was very interested in how people engage with faith and spirituality. And um, I found her interviews with these people really fascinating, and I wanted to take a look at them. And uh, it, an article written about a book that she published, this is kind of the context for that. It says, among her interviewees, Elaine prays for guidance about whether to take a roommate or move to a new apartment. Kate gets angry with God and yells at him when things go wrong, when she organizes a trip for the church and the bus company is flaky or it rains. Stacy prays for a good haircut and Hannah asks God about whom to date, and sometimes feels he is pranking her in little ways. Quote, I'll trip and fall and I'll be like, thanks God. Rachel asks for help with how to dress. Like, God, what should I wear? I think God cares about really, really little things in my life. Other women speak of setting an evening aside for a date night with the Lord. Men speak of quiet time with God. They are perhaps encouraged in this thinking by their pastor, who suggests that his congregants should set out a second cup of coffee for God in the morning to pour God an actual cup of steaming coffee, to place it on an actual table, and to sit down at that table, to talk to God about the things on our minds. And what I find fascinating about Lerman's findings is that the emphasis by these Christians, emphasis by these Christians is that prayer and interaction with God is casual, conversational, and it's very akin to some of the stuff I was talking about with the New Age spiritualism, that God is you know, akin to a divine therapist, that we can come before him and vent our problems, 
and then we can put them in our pockets when we don't need them anymore. And obviously we know that's not what prayer is. But it was very interesting, and actually reading through this was kind of convicting, because some of those practices, particularly one where you set it a second cup of coffee, I've done before, and maybe some of you have as well, but it was a way for me to kind of get in this you know, mindset of prayer. This passage does actually help me transition to the next section of what I wanted to discuss, namely how Christians view prayer. So as I've just discussed, Christians have the capacity to view prayer as conversational. In my research, most Christian resources I've come across have defined prayer generally as talking to God. And I think that's the predominant view of prayer that many of us have or have had. That prayer is this ongoing conversation we have with God. And there's no pressure or structure to it, just that we're communicating with God in some vocal way or another. For me, uh, and this was a view I actually had a while ago, this helped me reconcile verses like pray without ceasing. With that verse in particular, it took the rigidity of you know, bowing my head and folding my hands and turned it into something a little less structured, which I liked, but admittedly I don't think was helpful. I also think it helped me come to terms with this kind of obscure practice that I was confronted with. I didn't really understand prayer, and so it made sense to me to think of it as conversational, because prayer does kind of bridge a sort of strange gap, where it's simultaneously rhetorical, in that we're taking a moment to give a speech in a sense, but it's also a dialogue in that God responds to that speech. It places prayer in this strange category. It's a different type of communication. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But to continue, I think alongside viewing prayer as conversational, Christians also have a tendency to view prayer as a kind of tool. When I was growing up, that's how prayer was often described to me, that it was one of the most powerful tools in our toolkit. And I think the way this was rationalized to me was that prayer was akin to something you know, like the armor of God, uh, in that we use this mode of communication as an instrument. We'll get into this more later as well, admittedly, but of course that doesn't represent prayer either. Prayer isn't a tool, but it's a direct means of communicating with God. Before I go any further, the reason I wanted to discuss these differing viewpoints is so we can understand where we're coming from in our understanding of prayer and where we should be going when we're engaged in prayer to God. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend a while ago about this subject, and he said something fascinating. He said that when he walked away from his faith, that prayer was one of the primary reasons. He said growing up, nobody gave him a clear answer of what prayer was, and so he saw the only way he had of communicating to God is some sort of fuzzy, obscure practice, and he couldn't get engaged to it. And I think this ambiguous and unclear way of approaching prayer is having some inadvertent side effects on us as believers. And I believe returning to a more biblical approach to prayer should, of course, do us much better than going based on our own presuppositions. So, with that level of importance in mind, let's take a look at the biblical perspective of prayer. Like I said, when I first began my research for the sermon, I actually was initially going to defend the viewpoint I had just discussed, namely that prayer was a kind of conversation. But, as is the case, it seems like always, the Bible proved me wrong and had me reconsider my assumptions. A verse in particular had me reframe these ideas, Psalm 5. Uh, Psalm 5, one through three, and I had actually kind of randomly came across this uh, passage through an old hymn that I uh, found. The hymn was more or less the King James translation of that verse put to a melody. It's a very beautiful hymn, and I certainly enjoy it, but sometimes the KJV is a little tricky for me to understand with all the, you know, these and thous. So I thought I'd read the ESV, because that's the translation that I normally read, uh, to get a more contemporary phrasing of the verse. And I noticed an interesting difference between the two translations. So the KJV reads as follows. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, 
for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Then, here's the ESV. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So, a little bit of differences between the two translations. The KJV in verse 3 says prayer, while the ESV says sacrifice. And I thought, you know, why is that? Why does one say prayer and the other sacrifice? Because those are two, you know, from the outset, pretty different ideas. And so, whenever there's a bit of confusion with the English translation, it's probably best to go to the original Hebrew, and thankfully we have the internet at our fingertips, and there's tons of great resources. Um, but right in verse 2, in this passage, there's kind of a clue, an answer to this question that I had. And it lies in the word palal. The Hebrew word palal means to fall before one in authority and plead one's case. It can generally mean judgment or to judge, but it appears over 70 times in the Old Testament and it's translated frequently as to pray. And I think this probably speaks to the heart of prayer a lot more acutely and precisely than generally defining it as conversation. When we go before God, we fall before him in prayer. In terms of this idea of sacrifice, the word that the ESV uses, a word which carries a ton of conversation or um, connotations, you know, ideas of rams and spices and blood and priests, we can see the Bible draw connections between an incense offering and prayer. Such as in Revelation 8, where John recounts, just after the seventh seal is opened, that another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Now, this subject alone could warrant probably quite a few sermons or books. Um, so I would encourage you all to take some time to look at it in your own free time, at what the Bible says about this connection between prayer and incense. But scripture certainly makes that connection between prayer and this specific ritual of the Jewish people, that just as the smoke of incense would go before God as a pleasing aroma, so do our prayers. What this means for our prayer lives is that our praying should not be loose and casual, but should be filled with the awe and reverence of submission to God. We're going before our king, right? And that's what I'm trying to get at here. That is the heart of prayer, to bow before the one in authority and to let him know our requests, our fears, and needs, and our love for him. Because the offering of incense, you know, this tangible incense is not really what God wants. Um, scripture tells us in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God, or the offerings of God, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So there's no need to burn actual incense, but there's a desperate need to pray and pray in belief with our prayers going forth like incense. So, with that definition in mind, this idea that prayer is a request, a way of going before God in humility and reverence, let's take a look at a section of 1 Kings where we see that idea. If you have your Bibles with you, your phones, you can open to 1 Kings 18, your Bible. Um, and it should be up on the screens as well. Oh yeah, look at that. Um, the, the, I'm going through two chapters, 1 Kings 18 and 19, and because it's such a huge portion of scripture, I'm gonna be um, recapping the kind of first half of 1 Kings 18. So Elijah, he's our person of focus today, and he's about to make his presence known to King Ahab. He's the seventh king of Israel. Now Elijah is a prophet whose appearances in the Bible, uh, the Bible are usually brief, um, only occurring about a few chapters each but somebody who very clearly had a deep, powerful relationship with God. 
So, starting off in the first bit of 1 Kings, Elijah gets sent by God, the word of the Lord, comes to Elijah to meet King Ahab and let him know that rain is coming. Elijah had in the past prophesied that rain wouldn't fall on Israel unless by his word, and that prophecy had stayed in effect. Elijah is met on his way to Ahab by a man named Obadiah, who's a righteous man, and who is initially wary of Elijah's arrival, and Elijah's saying that he wants to talk with King Ahab. Obadiah's fears are that he knows that Elijah will be put in danger, and so he says, well, if I get King Ahab, you're just going to, you know, get whisked away by the Spirit of God, and then King Ahab's going to kill me. And Elijah's like, don't worry, I'm going to stay right here. And Obadiah goes and informs Ahab of Elijah's presence. When Ahab arrives, he's not exactly uh, pleased to see Elijah. He calls him a troubler of Israel. And Elijah's like, you're a fool, you're an idiot, you've turned away from God. Um, You need to go get your prophets, your prophets of Baal and Asherah, and meet me up on uh, Mount Carmel. And so King Ahab does that. Now, what happens next, on top of the miracles already that had been worked through Elijah, is a pretty fantastic and amazing portion of scripture. We can't get into all of it today, but there'll be a few key passages we'll zoom in on as we recap this portion. So, Elijah meets the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he challenges them, essentially, to call upon their God, and he'll call upon his God. And whomever's call is answered with fire, that's the one true living God. And they're like, okay, that sounds reasonable. And the prophets of Baal make their offering, and then they start cutting themselves and wailing and acting crazy, and nothing happens during their offering. And Elijah actually begins mocking them, and you'll see it up on the screen, but I kind of love what he says. It says in verse 27, and at noon... Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So Elijah's like, Okay, my turn. He makes an altar to God, and he actually repairs an old altar of the Lord that had been thrown down previously, with 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel. He places the wood and the bowl on the altar for his offering, and he digs a huge trench around this altar and fills it with water. So, picking up in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So, pretty intense, pretty amazing stuff. Huge victory for God, for Elijah, for the believers of God. Elijah's doing amazing stuff. God is doing amazing stuff through Elijah. Um, Really quick, hold on to that little verse, not a little verse, but uh, in verse 38, it says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. We'll come back to that idea a little bit. Um, But Elijah's doing great things, and he's on top of the world right now. Huge spiritual victory, but we're going to keep moving because something amazing, another amazing thing is about to happen, picking up in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. 
And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now. Look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So, Elijah's three-and-a-half-year prophecy of drought comes to an end with an incredible defeat on the side of the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and rain is on its way to Israel, and Elijah sprints faster than Ahab's chariots. He sprints to the gates of Jezreel. This section here is prayer fully realized in moments of joy and success. Elijah fully depended upon and trusted God through prayer and communion with the Lord. He's rewarded for his faith, and his requests to God are always answered often immediately. As we just read, it says that Elijah bowed himself down on the earth in an act of submission and offering. His prayer going forward as incense, that's that idea of Palal. We are given a full illustration of Elijah bowing himself down to the one in authority, that being God. Prayer, then, we can see in its most holy and grace-filled form is a humbling of the contrite, prideful human spirit and awe-filled recognition that God alone is supreme, that he alone is powerful. In the book of James, which is full of passages on prayer, um, actually is a section that discusses this portion of 1 Kings. James writes this, saying, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And that's one of the most incredible things about this section of scripture. Elijah is a pretty incredible historical figure, I think we can all agree, and one that was really highly honored throughout scripture. He was present for the transfiguration of Christ. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. However, Elijah's glorification was not due to him being perfect, you know, because he wasn't, but rather it was to God's glory and power shining through him. By the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of God's spirit, that same glory shines through us. We have the same ability to go before God, let our requests be made known, and he promises to answer them. Christ says, knock and the door will be open. Ask and you will receive. Paul tells us to boldly approach the throne of God, just as Elijah did, through prayer on Mount Carmel. And that is the beauty and power of prayer, that we can bow ourselves before our king, and yet he will always have a place for us to make our case, our desires, our worship of him known in his courtroom. Now, even though that is certainly the nature of prayer, or a nature of prayer, that is not always the experience many of us have with prayer. Many of us have had prayers go unanswered. Many of us have had difficulty keeping the faith and staying firmly rooted in our beliefs, especially in the face of crisis, trauma, and tragedy. Existence in this life has always been plagued by anxiety, sadness, and fear since the fall of man. And these concerns interfere with prayer and how we bring ourselves before God. This next chapter, chapter 19 of 1 Kings, talks about that a little bit, so let's take a look. This will be a little bit of a longer section that I'm going to read here, but it's all pretty crucial. So I'll skip some of the summarizing to do with the last chapter, but we're picking up in verse 1, chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. 
But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the, with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So... Pretty big portion of scripture, and there's certainly a lot we could tuck into there. But to summarize, Elijah, after having these back-to-back moments of prayers answered and God's providence shown to him, those around him continually gets a threat from Queen Jezebel, who is the wife of King Ahab, that she's going to kill him. And he freaks out. It's sort of strange, given Elijah's character, um, that he would seemingly lose heart so quickly, but I'm also not going to purport to know the danger and anxiety of that moment. Regardless, Elijah is scared, and he runs away. He leaves his servant in Beersheba, and he treks off alone in the wilderness to die. Now, many of us will probably never have to face something like that, where people are directly out to hunt us down and kill us, and also people that, you know, have it well within their means and resources to guarantee that we die. Um, But this sentiment of having more anxiety than faith in the face of uncertainty and danger is probably a pretty commonly shared feeling by all of us. It's scary. The world is scary, and life is hard. And more often than not, we find ourselves just like Elijah, preferring to run off alone and hope that we die. However, Elijah doesn't die. God sends him an angel who ministers to him, and then has Elijah make the journey to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. Earlier, I talked about how God always has a place for us in his courtroom to pray to him. The second aspect of prayer that I want to touch on that is so beautiful is not only that God allows us in, but God brings us in. He leaves the courtroom to find us, to call us one by one individually. That's kind of the gospel message, that Christ came down from heaven in the form of a man to die on the cross to atone us for our sins. He knows our names, the words we're about to say, the amount of hair on our heads, 
He's deeply invested in the glorification of his creation that we, like Isaiah, in the throne room of God may be touched on our lips by the burning coal that our guilt can be taken away and our sin atoned for. God's sending of winds and an earthquake and fire, of course, so incredible, but when God appears to Elijah as the sound of a low whisper, that speaks volumes to the aspects of God that are the most beautiful. I asked us to pay attention in that section of 1 Kings 18 where God sends fire from heaven um, because it touches on the same kind of aspect I'm getting into, which is that God is not just a God of miracles, nor is he just a God of grand designs and amazing things, but so beautifully put in this passage, we see that God is a God of presence. He doesn't abandon Elijah, and he doesn't abandon us. He asks Elijah twice, what are you doing here? And Elijah lets him know his fears, that he feels like he's alone, that he feels like his jealousy and love for God have been overlooked, and that he fears his death at the hands of Jezebel. And God encourages Elijah, I think, in the best way possible by reminding him and showing him that Elijah has a purpose, a mission to glorify God in his kingdom. That's the second part of prayer. Not just that we approach God and let our requests be made known to him, but that God approaches us and comforts us in all of our pain and imperfection. As we begin to wrap things up here, I just want to remind you all today that this is, once again, a vast and deeply nuanced subject, this idea of prayer. With all this information, it can be easy to lose sight of the fundamental question, why should I pray? Prayer is one of the cornerstones of our faith, and it is the primary means that you as a believer communicate with the Lord. Even if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, he asks you to call on his name. Pray to him and he will answer you. That's the promise, that's the guarantee. I hope by knowing this, knowing that we can go and offer ourselves and our prayers before God as a living sacrifice, as an incense offering, it'll encourage us all to pray mightily, to pray frequently, and to pray in faith, knowing that God hears you always and will keep you safe always. I also want to encourage you guys that prayer is a practice. I'm not an expert on prayer, and I think, you know, very often or very few times in the Bible we see any real experts on prayer. The disciples came before Christ, and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Paul says, for you do not know how to pray, so the Holy Spirit intercedes on your behalf. It's a very common thing to not know how to approach God through prayer. Prayer takes time and devotion and discipline, and it's not always easy. But God hears you even when the words don't come out right or you can't think of anything to say, or you feel too broken to say anything to anyone. Words? God knows the words before they even leave your mouth, and he knows exactly what you need. What matters is that you go to the throne room first to see him. I'd like to do something a little interesting today to end, and I'm not gonna you know, force you guys to do it, but I'd like us all to say the Lord's Prayer together. It should appear on the screen, hopefully, if we're lucky. We are lucky. Um, so feel free to bow your head if you know it by heart or follow along. This is uh, in Matthew, chapter 6, 9 through 13, where Christ encourages his disciples to pray. And he encourages them to pray like this. I'll flip there as well in my Bible. So Christ encourages us to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to me chit chat for a little bit. Um, if you're looking for someone to pray with, we have people around the auditorium and we will also have people over there at the end of the service um, who would love to take some time with you to sit down, talk and pray. God bless you all.
Uh, would you guys stand? We're going to worship the Lord just a little bit more before we leave this morning and just take uh, everything that Abel kind of shared with us to heart. And take a moment to pray for yourself, for your family, with those next to you. But uh, what a good time to respond to the Lord. Amen.